Good morning. I'm glad to see all you guys here, and I'm really excited for you guys to see what we've been learning in youth. Um, so what we've been doing in youth for the last month and a half, two months, is we've been going through the story of Jesus. Uh, we started with um, all the him as a new covenant. We went through all the prophecies he fulfilled. Uh, we went through John the Baptist. We went through some of Jesus's miracles. We've just been really studying Jesus, and with every part of Jesus comes some sort of theological debate. Um, I went to school for ministry, so naturally I love the debates. I really love theology, and so I've been wanting to share my love of theology with the students, and the students today are going to share with you some of the theology that we've been learning in youth, and that'll start with Alex. Hello, I'm Alex. I'm going to be talking about inerrancy versus infallibility, which are two different views of the Bible. So there are two theological terms that are often used to explain the nature of the Bible, inerrancy and infallibility. They are used to point out how the Bible is different from all other books that have ever been written. Many use these terms interchangeably. Infallibility means incapable of making a mistake, while inerrancy means the absence of any error. These concepts arose when the issue of the divine inspiration of the Bible was being addressed. Questions arose such as, in what sense or to what degree is the Bible the divinely inspired word of God. How does it differ, differ from all other books? The, um, infallible, the word infallible, it means trustworthy. When referring to scripture, the term infallible is usually used to mean reliable and trustworthy. It, refer, it refers to something that is without any type of defect whatsoever. Those who trust its infallible teachings will never be led astray. And then inerrancy means there are no errors whatsoever. The term inerrancy is more recent. While some Christians use inerrancy and infallible interchangeably, they are normally used in slightly different ways. Inerrancy contends that the Bible does not have any errors of fact or any statements that are contradictory. Inerrancy is more concerned with the details of scripture. Infallibility is the broader term. It deals more with personal knowledge of the Lord rather than details. For example, one who believes in inerrancy will also believe in infallibility. The, the reverse, however, is not necessarily true. There are those who argue that the Bible can contain errors of fact while still accomplishing its purpose, to bring humanity into a relationship with God. They see no problem trusting the Bible as the final standard of authority on all matters of faith and practice, though it may contain some errors. However, many others think that the idea of an infallible but not an inerrant Bible is something that is absolutely nonsensical. <laughs> Good morning, church. Um, for those of you don't, that don't know me, uh, my name is Landon Fallon. Um, the theological debate that I'm covering today is baby baptism. So what that means is the belief of should babies be baptized as babies? So with this debate, there are two main sides, baby baptism and believer baptism. Um, believers side believe that the baby should not be baptized as a baby, that it should wait till it is that child's conscious decision to follow the Lord in their life. Um, and then baby baptism believes that the baby should be baptized as a child, and it's a family sign of showing them that they're walking with faith, with faith with this child. So those are the two major views, and I'm passing it off to Ava. Got to actually get my thing out. Hold on. <laughs> uh, 
Hello, uh, I'm Ava. <laughs> um, I'm going to be talking about the Christological debate, uh, which is a debate that discusses Jesus' divine powers during his time on earth. Within this debate exists two main views, classical and canonic. Classical view suggests that during Jesus' time on earth, he existed as both fully God and fully man, possessing the powers of both. Canonic view, on the other hand, suggests that during his time on earth, Jesus relinquished his godlike powers and became fully and only human. Hi, I'm Faith Newford, and I'm going to be talking about, talking about complementarian and egalitarian and the difference between them. Complementarian means women, men and women are equal but serve different purposes. Some people say men sh should be in charge, not women. Some people also say women should not teach children over the age of 13. Egalitarian means position of gift but not gender. Gift made men and women equal in the beginning. Since Christ saved us, we do not have to follow the fallen order since we are clean. That's the difference between complementarian and egalitarian. To sum up everything, women in the Bible could not preach, but now women can preach and be in church authority. And I, is it, is it turn off? Hello? Hello. Is it turn off? Oh, it's on? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am now going to be reading scripture. So this is John eleven thirty-two through 37. Mm -hmm. Through 37. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. <laughs> so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Then, but some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And there's another verse. It's Psalm 42:11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right. So that's what we've been learning in youth so far, along with the stories of Jesus that we might not talk about very often. Um, they did a great job. I, they typed all of that from memory. Some of them went and did a little extra research past what we talked about in youth because they wanted to make sure that it was spot on. So really proud of them. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go ahead and pray if you'll bow your heads with me. Um, Agape, thank you for everything that you are and everything that you're doing. Um, thank you for the youth and everything that they are. Uh, I ask that today you would come and meet us where we are, um, that we wouldn't have to fake where we are. I ask that everything that comes out of my mouth be honoring and glorifying to you and not to me. In Jesus' name, amen. So while I was thinking about what to talk about today, um, I've known for a while that I was going to be speaking today, and I found a common theme in my life, and that was I have like maybe three really good friends in Ohio, and all of them are going through a lot right now, like so much. And um, something I learned while I was in school was that when you go to a new church and you take a new position, change is the representation of something lost. 
And so when you lose something, you have to grieve it. Even if it's good change, you still have to grieve. And so as I was thinking about what, it, what to talk about today, I realized that I'm still going through a period of grieving. Um, my friends are all going through periods of grieving. And um, just a church in general that has a new pastor, there's a period of grieving, even if it's good change. So today I want to talk to you about some reactions to grief. Um, so while I was reading the scripture, I began to think of the worship song, How He Loves. Do you guys know that song? Yeah. It's a pretty common song. Um, and most of the time we attribute, attribute it to Crowder. However, Crowder is not who wrote that song. Does anybody know who actually wrote that song? So it was a man that goes by John Mark McMillan. is the original author of How He Loves. And one time I was listening to a worship playlist at school and there was this like extra verse added in to this song. And I was like, this is not how this song goes. Like, I don't know where this came from, but like this extra verse is saying through a sobbing man. A man is sobbing while he sings, I thought about you the day Stephen died and you met me between my breaking. I know that I still love you, God, despite the agony. And people, they try to tell me you're cruel, but if Stephen could sing, he'd say it's not true because you're good. And I was like, what is this? Like, who's Stephen? So I go and I start looking into it, and I find this beautiful story of how the song How He Loves was written. And when you look into it, John Mark McMillan had this best friend named Stephen. And they did everything together. Like, John Mark McMillan felt like Stephen was, like, one of the only people in the world that truly understood him and was able to talk with him about his grief and his sorrow and his happiness. He was the only person that John felt understood. And so they were in this prayer meeting, and John says that he remembers Stephen praying, God, I would give my life today if it would rock the youth of, these nation, of this nation. And that same night, according to the story, Stephen died in a car accident. And through that grief and sorrow, John says this. I was super angry and I didn't know who to be angry at. And I came to realize that if you're angry at nobody, then you're really angry with God because he's the only one who can change the situation. So I sit down, I sat down, I didn't have a bad attitude, I wasn't shaking my fist at God, I was just, I guess, hurt. I was really young, I'd never experienced anything like that before. I thought Stephen was the only one who understood me in certain ways, probably the only guy at the time that I could be completely honest about any area of my life. And he was the same with me, there was no sort of pretension when he was gone, it was, I have nobody to call, nobody to talk to. How am I going to process and deal with life without him here? And so I sat down, and that song just sort of materialized. And as I was singing the song, I saw the story of my friend in the song. In my heart, I was questioning the love of God, really. I was trying to have a conversation with God, but I think he was speaking to me in the song, even though it's written from my perspective. And from that grief and pain, one of the most well-known worship songs, I think, personally, was born, How He Loves. 
So we started out by reading about the death of Lazarus, right? So I was going to have Alex read all 38 verses, but I figured that was a little unfair to him. So I'll just explain to you what's going on up until this point. So Jesus is doing his thing, teaching, whatever, in a place that's far off from where Lazarus is. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are siblings, right? And Mary and Martha send someone to tell Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. We need you to come. And so Jesus gets this message, and he's like, okay, all glory is going to go to God. I'm going to stay here for a little bit. So Jesus stays where he is. Instead of running to heal this guy that's sick, he stays where he is for two more days before leaving. So when he finally leaves, or when he's talking about leaving, the disciples are like, Jesus, you can't go back there. They were trying to stone you last time you were there. You can't go. And Jesus is basically like, hey, there's 12 hours in a day which means every day ends, and my time is coming to an end. And so I have to walk in the will of God. And so Thomas, who we often know as Doubting Thomas, this is just a cool thing, you know, we know Thomas as Doubting Thomas, but Thomas looked a lot like Jesus. He's referred to as the twin. And Thomas is like, guys, if Jesus is going, we have to go. We can't let him die alone. So they all go, and they stop outside of the city that Lazarus is in. And... When they get there, Mary comes running out to Jesus, and that's where we pick up. So I've been thinking about how we react to grief through what I've read in these verses. And so I found three reactions to grief in this, in this part of the Bible. And the first reaction is blame. So when something requ that requires grieving happens in our life, we tend to quickly turn to blame someone else for it. Verse 32 says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. So what we see through this is Mary saying, Jesus, where were you? We sent for you. We called for you. He was still alive when we sent for you. And now he's dead. And if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. So some things that are like to note about this is that like Mary is talking to Jesus right now and she's not afraid to tell him, hey, what's up? Like what kind of relationship do you, like you have to have such a good relationship with someone to be able to talk to them like that. So, what we see here is that Mary has had time to sit with her grief and she has turned it to blame. So the definition of blame is to assign responsibility to a fault or wrong. Mary is basically saying, God, this is your fault. I asked for you, I called on you, and you didn't come. How dare you? Where were you? I know that in my life, I found this to be pretty common of a response. Um, anytime something bad happens, I'm like, well, if somebody wouldn't have done this, this wouldn't have happened. So I started looking into why we turn to blame when we're grieving. And grief therapist Megan Devine writes, blame is a way to discharge pain and discomfort. Intense grief is a reminder that our lives here are tenuous at best. 
Evidence of someone else's nightmare is proof that we could be next. That's seriously uncomfortable evidence. We have to do some fancy footwork, or rather fancy brain work, to minimize our discomfort and maintain our sense of safety. We use blame, that's the end of the quote. We tend to use blame because grief is uncomfortable. Grief is hard. Nobody likes to feel grief. Nobody likes it. And so a way for us to not have to sit with that pain and that grief is to just say, well, this is someone else's fault. Because it takes some of the, the stress and the grief that we're feeling and it puts it on someone else. So then our discomfort gets to be blamed on someone, which makes us angry instead of sad. She goes on to write, to maintain this belief that we have in society, which is pain is not a good thing. We don't want to feel pain. To maintain this belief, pain is bad, we've created and sustained an entire culture based on a magical thinking continuum. Think the right thoughts, do the right things, be evolved, non-attached, optimistic, faithful, and everything will be okay. Pain and grief are never seen as healthy responses to loss. They are far too threatening for that. We resist them in equal measure to our fear of being consumed by them. So I grew up as a pastor's kid, and as a pastor's kid, regardless of whether or not you feel like you do it, pastor's kids have extra weight put on them to be perfect, to be who they need to be. And so growing up, I felt like I was never allowed to struggle, ever. And if I did, I did it quietly where nobody was listening, nobody saw, and I would just cry myself to sleep at night. And then I would wake up and I'd go to church and I'd put a smile on my face because I'm a pastor's kid and the pastor's kid has to be great. And sometimes when I would admit that I wasn't doing well, people would be like, oh, well, just give it to God. It'll be fine. And like, I don't know if you know this, but if, if someone's grieving, never tell them just to give it to God because the, the, the fact of the matter is we're already trying. We're trying. And so sometimes with grief, when people are grieving, that's not what you do. You just say, I'm so sorry, and you sit with them in it. So I think it's crazy because I've had conversations with some people, some friends just recently that are in their 20s and just now learning that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve as a Christian. And grief often starts with blame. And when we have no one else to blame, we normally blame God. So when I was between my junior and senior year of high school, we moved from Fairbanks, Alaska to Amsterdam, Ohio. And I was pretty mad because I didn't want to move to Fairbanks in the first place, but I told my dad straight up, the one place I want to live less than Fairbanks is Amsterdam, Ohio. <laughs> Honestly. And so... Naturally, as what happens when you tell someone something like that, you move. And I was sad and angry, and I was like, I am a senior in high school. Like, senior year is supposed to be the year that you get to go to senior skip day and the senior scavenger hunt, and you get to do all these fun things that only seniors get to do, and you get to walk across the stage with all your friends and tell everyone you've made it. But now I have to start completely over. I have to make brand new friends. I have to do all of this new stuff. I have to live in this little town that is not my favorite. I, I love the people there, but I prefer cities. 
Um, and I was angry. And to put on top of that, we had a dog for 16 years that we had to put down two weeks before we left. And so not only have I moved to this brand new place, but I also don't have a dog. And like, dogs are what get you through. And so I start begging my parents. I'm like, please let me get a dog, please. And they're like, no, we don't need a dog. Like, we deal with dog hair all the time. We finally don't have dog hair. Like, we don't need a dog. <laughs> um, and so what I did was, um, people say I'm tenacious. Every time, that <laughs> every time that my dad would come home from work, I would say, Dad, wouldn't it be so nice to have something that's excited to see you when you get home? Or we'd be eating dinner, and my mom would drop a piece of food on the floor, and I'd be like, Mom, wouldn't it be so nice if we had an animal that could come and eat that for you so that you didn't have to bend all the way down there to pick it up? Or my mom would say she was cold, and I'd be like, Mom, wouldn't it be so nice to have a personal heater in the form of a dog? So after, like, two weeks of this, my parents are, my mom is like, you can only get a dog if it's small, Okay. And my dad's like, well, you can only get a dog if it's a German Shepherd or a Husky. And so I'm like searching Pet Finder. I'm like looking through all of these dogs. And I'm like, I find this dog and I look at him and he's wearing sunglasses. And I'm like, this is the one. And so I run downstairs and I show my parents and I'm like, mom, look at him. He's so cute. And like, if you squint enough, he kind of looks like a German Shepherd puppy, but he's like part beagle. So he'll stay pretty small. And my mom's like, talk to your dad. I was like, okay. So I go and I give the same speech to my dad. And my dad's like, okay, you can go look at him. And I was like, I'm not looking. I'm getting this dog. <laughs> and so we go to the Jefferson County Humane Society. And we tell him we're there to see Cooper. And they bring him out. And we go out into the yard. And we run around. And he chases me. And he makes me really happy. And I'm like, mom, he's so cute. Look at him. He's so cute. And my mom's like, call your dad. And so I call dad, and I'm like, hey, so we met Cooper, and he's perfect. Um, and mom told me to call you, and he's like, let me talk to your mom. And so my dad hands my mom the phone, and my mom goes, okay, but David, he is really cute. <laughs> so I get this dog. <laughs> he comes home with me. My senior year of high school is one of my favorite years because this dog was my best friend. There's like this, ten, this trend going around on like TikTok, Instagram, whatever you watch your reels on. And it's like, it's like just this voice that says, some people don't realize that you saved my life. And it's just like videos of dogs. And that's what that dog was for me. Like when I was at school and having a hard time and not wanting to be there, I would have something to look forward to because I got to come home to my best friend. And no matter what I was feeling, if I was sad, if I was angry, if I was anything, he was there. And he had like this weird way of knowing that I needed extra cuddles some days. So I love this dog so much that I get him certified as emotional support because I um, have diagnosed anxiety and depression. And so I get him certified as emotional support and he comes with me to school. And this dog walks through with me through dating a boy that was really not great to me finding out that he cheated on me, staying with him for two years after that, and then him breaking up with me by telling me that he didn't want me anymore. 
He walks with me through all of that. He's there with me through 2020 COVID. Like, 2020 COVID, I had a great time. I had my dog. Like, I got to spend all day every day with my baby. So all of that to say, like, this relationship with this dog, he was my, what people call their soul dog. Like, there's just that one dog that just matches your soul. And in November of last year, he started getting really sick. And I took him to the vet, and they were like, oh, he just has a food, food allergy. It's fine. Take him home. Like, just give him special food. So we give him special food. About a week, two weeks passed, he's still sick. Take him back, and they're like, well, there might be something in his stomach. So we'll just, like, you know, we'll have to do, like, x-rays and stuff like that to see if maybe there's something in his stomach. And I'm like, well, I can't afford that. Is there any way to just know, like, if that thing in his stomach is cancer? Like, can we just figure that out? So they do a blood test. And it comes back positive. So then they're like, okay, well, you're going to need to take him. You're going to need to get him a full CT scan, see if we can find out where the cancer is, all this stuff. So I take him. They do the CT scan, nothing. There's nothing there. So then they're like, okay, well, maybe the cancer test just, it was a false positive, so we'll just do it again. So they do it again, and it comes back positive again. And they're like, gosh, I don't know, full CT scan again? And so we do a full CT scan again, still nothing. But he's progressively getting worse. So at this point, like, I'm tired of cleaning up excrement from my dog, and so I move home because I needed help. I move home, and so, <laughs> so then I go back to my vet that I went to growing up, which is my best friend's mom, and she's like, there is no evidence of cancer other than this blood test. No evidence of it. So it has to be a food thing. And so I ask her, like, can we please just, just put, him, put him to sleep? Like, I don't want to see this anymore. And she's like, I really think we can do something. Let's try it. And I was like, okay, fine. We'll try it. So that was December. We try everything. All of the medicines. And for three months, I have to watch as my puppy deteriorates in front of me. <laughs> so then February 20th, I take him and finally just get it over with. He's done. He's good. Like, he's probably knocking over all the trash cans in heaven. Um, but I remember February 20th so vividly because I was so frustrated. And I was like, God, where were you? I asked for you. I called on you. Some guy told me a story about his dog choking. And he said, in the name of God, stop choking. And the dog stopped choking. And that dog's fine. What about mine? Where were you? This is your fault. So I want to ask you, is there a place of grief in your life right now that you are blaming on God? Maybe you've lost a loved one or you're grieving the loss of money or comfort. Maybe you feel like God has taken everything from you and left you to dry. Think about how many times this week you've allowed these things to distract you and put a wedge between you and God. And really ask yourself, is it his fault? So we talked about the first reaction to grief, and that's blame. The second reaction 
is anger. When something in our life causes us to grieve, we will normally end up angry about it. So verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, what's interesting about this verse is if you look at the Greek, which is what the Bible was originally written in, the, the word that they use for deeply moved is, a, sorry, embrimaomai, which means to snort with anger. So Jesus, seeing the weeping, and the Jews that came with her also eat weeping, he snorts with anger. He's mad. So why would he be mad? Why would he be angry? Because Jesus has to grieve too. Because in order to see that, you have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates this perfect world, this world with no pain, no sorrow, no death, no anything. And now Jesus, because of what we've done, Jesus is watching the people that he loves grieve. And he's angry about it. Because this is not the way that it was supposed to be. The people he loved were not supposed to grieve. That's not what it was supposed to be. And now he has to watch his friends hurt because of decisions they've made. But he still is angry that it's not the way he meant it to be. Board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse pr practitioner, Kate Hanselman writes, a common cause of anger when it comes to grief is the individual's reluctance to accept that they have to continue life without their loved one. We get angry because we don't want to accept that we have to keep going without the, what we're grieving. So Jesus in this, in this portion is angry that he has to keep going in this life as a human and watch people grieve even though that's not the way that it was intended. And Mary, when asking Jesus, where were you, was blaming, but she was also angry. Because now she has to deal with the fact that she has to live the rest of her life without her brother Lazarus. So <laughs> the most grieving I've done recently is because of my dog. And so naturally, I'm going to go back to that story. So shortly after getting through blaming and like just being like, God, where were you? This is your fault. You did this. I moved on to anger. But I wasn't just angry that Barnabas was gone. I was angry at everything. Because I graduated a semester before Wesley. So I graduated in December, and Wesley had to go till May. We went to school in Oklahoma. My parents live in Ohio. So I'm angry because my entire engagement, I have to do long distance because my dog got sick. So we're doing long distance for the entire portion of our engagement. And I'm angry that my fiance is a thousand miles away and can't help me with my sick dog. And can't be here for me when I want him the most. I'm angry that I'm working a job at TJ Maxx after I went to four years of school for a degree that I wasn't sure I was ever going to use. I'm angry that I'm living with my parents at 22 years old. I'm angry that everything is just going not the way I want it to go. And all of my life, I was just so angry. I was angry at everything. 
everything. And my mom is pretty good after living with me for 19 years. Um, she's pretty good at telling that something's going on based on whether or not I talk to people. <laughs> and so for a couple of weeks or so, I had just been quiet. I would go to work, I'd come home, I'd go to my room. I'd wake up, I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd go to my room. And so my mom also knows that when I'm trying to process something, I tend to get a little snippy with people. Like not mean, just like, just straightforward and not, not nice, somewhere in between. Um, and so my mom asks me, um, hey, are you okay? You've been really quiet for a while. You're getting kind of snippy with people. I just need to know, like, do you need anything? And I was like, no, I don't need anything. But mom, I am so angry. I'm angry that my fiance lives forever away. I'm angry that I'm working a job that has nothing to do with my degree. I'm angry that my best friend died. I'm angry that my new puppy, Mateo, is not Barnabas. And then that makes me angry that I'm angry at that because I feel bad for Mateo because I don't even know where he likes to be pet. And I've had him for three months because I'm just so angry that he's not Barnabas that I don't touch him. And I'm angry that I am stuck in this small town again. I'm angry that my fiance's not here to help me plan this wedding. I'm angry about all of these things. I'm just angry. And I'm especially angry that I have to know for the rest of my life, I never get to see Barnabas again. So maybe you're there. Maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you're angry because you're grieving something. Maybe you've been wanting to like go outside and just scream and be like, God, like I'm so mad. So maybe this week pay a little bit of attention to your grief and anger. Like John Mark McMillan said at the beginning, like when you're not really angry at anything, normally you're angry at God. So maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're a little bit angry at God. So the first reaction to grief that we talked about was blame. We talked about how when we are grieving something, we often blame someone else for it. The second reaction we, of grief we talked about was anger. And now I'm going to talk to you about the third reaction. The third reaction is sadness. When you're grieving a recent loss, your reaction will sometimes present itself as sadness. Verses 34 through 35 say, And he said to them, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. When I first read this, and when I was told that the shortest verse in the Bible was Jesus wept, I was like, why in the world did Jesus weep? Like, what does that even mean? So this verse does a couple of things. The first is that it shows us that Jesus felt every emotion we feel. First he felt anger, and then he felt sadness. But something that I found interesting, again, was studying the Greek words that are used in this scripture. And the way that Jesus wept is different than the way that, Je that Mary wept. It's two different words. So when Mary, or when Mary was weeping, they used the word clio which means a loud wailing or to bewail something. So Mary was overcome by this sadness. There was nothing else she could do other than just weep. 
and wail. But when you look at the word that they use for Jesus wept, it's dakro, which means to shed tears. And that's an interesting difference. And the reason that there's this difference is because even though Jesus was grieving, even though he was sad, he did not let his emotions overcome him. He felt what he needed to feel. He did what he needed to do. But he did not fall and get lost in the sadness. And so when we look at that, like, Jesus is weeping partially because he's angry, but also because he's sad. I know I have friends that, like, they date guys, and I'm like, yo, this guy is not, he's not it. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll just give him a chance. And then they get really hurt. And I'm like, I'm sad for them, but I'm also a little bit like, yeah, you did this to yourself. Like, this is your fault. But I know because I did that. Um, but Jesus cries. He weeps because he has to see the people he, love, he loves hurting. And nobody likes to see that. So now that, now that Barnabas has been gone a while, I'm still grieving his loss, obviously, because I cried. <laughs> it's been almost nine months, and I still tear up when I think about him. I really moved from this point of like just being angry to this point of sadness one day when I was in counseling. And if you don't go to counseling, I highly suggest it. Counseling's great. Um, but I go to counseling, and I'm talking to my counselor, and I'm like, I'm just angry. I'm angry at this. I'm angry at this. I'm angry at this. I don't know why I'm angry. I feel like I've been asking God all of these questions, and he's not answering me, and I'm just angry. And what she said was, that's okay. You get to be angry. You're allowed to be angry. And at that point, when somebody validated the fact that I could be angry, I was just sad. And so, like, in that moment, I remember just all of the anger melting away and just realizing how terribly sad I was. And I still feel that sadness <laughs> to this day. Healthy grieving takes a while. There's this, like, thing that it's like, there's, when you grieve, there's, like, this ball in a room, and there's a button on the floor, and when you first start grieving, the ball is really big, so it's always pressing the button. So you're always grieving. And then as you go, the ball gets smaller, and it bounces around the room. And every once in a while, it just hits the button. And you're like, ooh, that hurt. <laughs> I'm grieving a little bit today. And so that's what Wesley and I use now when we're grieving something. We'll just look at each other and say, hey, the ball's really big today. Have you been able to reach a point in your grief that you're able to accept what you're feeling and just be sad. Think about how much better and how much healthier we would be if we would just accept that we're grieving. Accept where we are and cry. So there's a question that I ask our youth every week when we finish, and that's, what does this matter? Why did we talk about this today? We talked about it for a couple of reasons. Like I said earlier, this sermon, this, this topic has been heavy on my heart because this week has been a week that the ball has been really big with Barnabas. 
on top of that, I've been grieving. One of my best friends told me she's moving. And that takes my whopping number of three friends to two. <laughs> Um, my other friend has been going through a whole bunch of stuff, and it's been a period of life where I feel like I can't really talk to people because there's so much going on in everyone else's life that, like, I got Wesley, and that's good. <laughs> like, um, so this has been really heavy on my heart. Um, and like I said before, when there's a new pastor, you have to grieve the loss of the old one. And I don't think that as a church we're really taught to grieve very well. And that's not just this church, that's the whole church is not taught to grieve very well. And the last reason is because if you learn to grieve, if you learn to accept where you are and feel what you feel, you help the kids in your life learn to grieve what they feel and feel what they feel. And that helps us just raise a beautiful new generation that knows how to feel what they're feeling and deal with it in a, in a good way instead of the ways that we often do. So the whole point of this is that Jesus felt grief. He grieved. And as a church, if Jesus felt grief, we're allowed to too. You don't have to, you don't have to hide it. You don't have to pretend like you're not grieving. Just grieve. I also wanted to share it because we need to know how to respond to people when they're grieving. Because often when people are grieving, we're like, oh, that, that stinks. Sorry. But Jesus felt the grief with Mary. He sat with her and felt it with her. And then he does this crazy awesome thing where he goes and he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. You're fine. And Lazarus comes out fully alive, perfectly fine. It's great. And something I forgot to mention at the beginning, I think, and if I did, I'm sorry, you're going to hear it again. In Jewish tradition, the soul stays with the body for three days before it goes away forever. So Jesus waiting for two days, there was a reason. And that reason was Jesus came on the fourth day, which means Lazarus's soul had left his body according to that culture, which means that no one other than God was able to perform this miracle. And so what Jesus said in the very beginning when he first heard of Lazarus was, all of the glory from this is going to go to God. And when we learn to grieve well, when we learn to sit with our grief, to cry, to feel the anger, we learn to grieve well. And people see that. And all of the glory goes back to God. So I want to leave you with a quote from my favorite person to ever live, Fred Rogers. I love him so much I named my cat after him. Anyway, and this was his response a year after the tragedy of 9-11. I'm just so proud of you who have grown up with us. And I know how tough it is some days to look with hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. But I would like to tell you what I would often tell you when you were much younger. 
I like you just the way you are. And what's more, I am so grateful to you for helping the children in your life to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and to help them to express their feelings in ways that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. It's such a good feeling to know that we are lifelong friends. So I wanna challenge you this week. Sometimes when I'm grieving, it helps me just to sit down and write it out. So if you're grieving something, sit down, write it out, be honest. And if you're just angry, but you don't know why, and you just feel anger, I encourage you in the next couple of days to search and see if maybe you're angry with God. And if you're in this room and you don't know God, you don't know the Prince of Peace that walks beside you, I invite you to come and find this man that is able to walk with you through all of the pain and sadness. And the altars are open if you would like to come and pray. <laughs>